Good morning. My name is Clayton Feltz. I get to serve as the associate pastor here at City Church. Our lead pastor, I think a lot of you know this, Nelia um, actually hinted at it earlier, uh, Billy Lowe is literally running a marathon right now. Um, he is up in New York uh, running the Boston, or not the Boston, the Brooklyn Marathon, and uh, he's actually finishing up. Man, what an accomplishment for him to do that. Um, I looked up the percentage of people that actually like complete a marathon, and it's very small. And not only is he doing that, he's doing that at an unbelievable pace. So um, I know he has trained hard for that. He's given up a lot for that. So just super proud of him for that. So next week when he's returned, as he's limping around, still probably sore, <laughs> man, uh, just congratulate him on that because it is a huge accomplishment. But with that, um, let me tell you about a guy named Monty Roberts. Monty Roberts. Monty Roberts was born in California in 1957. Monty came from a very tough background. He had an abusive father. Um, he just had a tough home life. Um, and yet, despite this uh, tough background, Monty had a very unique talent that he developed. He was a great horseman. In fact, at the age of four years old, Monty entered his first rodeo and won every competition that he entered. Um, incredible. He would then go on through his childhood and his teenage years to be a stunt writer and coordinator for um, a lot of movies. So this was in the, in the era of Hollywood where there were quite a few westerns. They, those were big hits. And so uh, Monty was a big part of that. He then goes off to college and uh, does some more rodeo stuff, wins a number of, of championships. He's doing well, and he's is set to graduate. And he decides, hey, I love this. I'd love to do this for a living. No, I don't want to be a, a professional rodeo person, but I'd love to go train horses. I've just had a way with it. So Monty decides to do this. Now, as much as Monty's experience was um, training a horse or riding a horse, um, he actually didn't know, because of his tough background, a lot of people who owned horses. Um, drive around this area, and you can see that typically, if you own horses, uh, you need to have some money. Horses are expensive. And so, Monty didn't have any of his own, so he ended up uh, being an apprentice for this guy who was a trainer. And eventually, through that process, uh, he was hired, and he ended up with four, four horses, each a quarter of his income. Had a young family, he started this process, and he goes through it all, and there's just this one horse, gosh, this one horse who just will not do what he's training it to do. And so he asks his mentor, hey, what do, what do I do here? I'm like, I've done everything. And he said, you have. And it's come to the point where you need to call the owner of the horse and say, you're not going to train him anymore. So Monty said, well, wait a minute, though. If I do that, I'll lose a quarter of my, my income. I've got a family like, this is, this is a big decision. This is not just something like to take lightly. He said, what do you think is the right thing to do? And he kind of thought about that and thought, I've got to reach out to this guy. That's the right thing. So he calls the owner of the horse, a guy named Lawson Williams. He tells Mr. Williams, hey, I've, I've tried everything. Um, I know you've invested a lot of money in this. And it just isn't going to work. And of course... Lawson acts really, really mad. He 
yells at Monty. He tells him he's fired. He says, you're never going to work in this industry ever again. I know all the horse owners. You're done, Monty. And so Monty thought, gosh, man, maybe that's, that's true. Until a few days later, Monty's phone rings, and on the other end of the phone is a guy named Joe Gray. And this is what Joe Gray told Monty. He said, I was having lunch with Mr. Williams yesterday. He was complaining about you. <laughs> Mr. Williams was keeping his word about that. <laughs> but from what I heard, you must be the only honest trainer I've ever known. Well, I know that Panama Buck, that's the horse's name, of his wasn't any good. And so I know you were honest with him. And because of that, I want to hire you. Joe Gray did hire Monty Roberts as a trainer, and that actually sparked Monty Roberts' career. He would go on to train a lot of horses, wrote a book, became kind of the guru of that space. In fact, he ended up, he ended up training probably the most famous horse owner in the world's horses, Queen Elizabeth II. Queen Elizabeth II is an avid horseman, Monty being an American, Monty being American, um, was honored by her. There's Monty right there in the suit and the red tie. There's the queen, of course. And he ended up getting all these awards. And what's so amazing is he is a Californian, an American. He's not a British citizen. And yet, because of his service, because of the way he operated, even the Queen of England recognized that and honored him. See, the point of that is Monty understood. Monty understood that being a man of character mattered more than anything else. That his character was destiny. That he, he wanted to be honorable even if it was going to cost him. Even if it was going to cost them. And in the end, in the end, Living an honorable life, people noticed that about Monty, and he had a positive impact. And here's the thing. We know this to be true. Like, we really do. Think about it just in society in general, right? You see someone whose character is kind of questionable. Maybe it's a celebrity or an athlete or a politician or whoever, and you kind of go, eh, I don't know. And then eventually, eventually, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. And people then go, I don't understand. I mean, they were really good. Like, how could that happen? And it's because too often, too often we measure people's success based on their talent and not in their character. And what Paul is going to show us today is if that's how we're basing stuff on, that's a very unwise way to live. In fact, Paul, kind of summing up what he's going to talk about is this, that a dishonorable life is a life wasted. That a dishonorable life is a life wasted. Now, I know we have been kind of in and out of 2 Timothy for the last couple of weeks because we had Easter. We were in 2 Timothy before that Craig came and he spoke on missions. Um, but we've been in this series for a while, 2 Timothy. So if you have your little booklet or if you have a copy of God's Word, or if you don't, there's some on the, on the rows, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Because let me kind of catch us up here that, that Paul is in prison in Rome, that he's at the end of his life, he's awaiting trial, that Paul is going to die. It's not going to actually work out very well for Paul. And because what he knows lies ahead, he has written this beautiful letter to his friend, to his brother in Christ, to his mentee Timothy, who he has gone through a whole lot with in the past. And Paul has, in this letter already, he's encouraged Timothy about how his family brought him up in the faith, that uh, Timothy is faithfully served with Paul in the past, excuse me, going through a lot, that they have walked through hardship over and over. And then Paul has focused on kind of two ideas, that because of that background in his faith, that Timothy should be encouraged, that he should stand fast by remembering to be a good soldier of, of, of Christ Jesus. That's verse 1 and 8 of chapter 2. Like That he should be encouraged that it's because of who he is in Jesus that Timothy can have confidence. And then second, that as Timothy has that courage and confidence, he should remember to defend the truth of the gospel message. And that's what we actually, what Billy preached on a few weeks ago, leading up to this section, that in verse 15 of chapter 2, that Paul writes to Timothy that as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That, hey, Timothy, because of who you are in Christ, because of your background, because of all that we've gone through, remember that, be encouraged by that, but also remember to be in truth, no matter what. He is writing Timothy to remind him of these things. I can remember when my dad was at the end of his life, and he had, he had cancer, so the last few months, we kind of knew what this was, was going to happen and what was, where it was going, and he and I had a number of conversations, but one I remember more than any other is the Sunday before he passed away, Katie and I actually didn't go to church. We went back to where I'm from in Tennessee, and we just visited with him for three or four hours. We just sat there, and we, we laughed, and we remembered about things, and and we cried, and um, we, just, we just hung out together. And I can tell you, I can still remember everything my dad said that day. Because there was this urgency in his voice. He wanted to tell or pass along to me what was important, because he knew he didn't have much time left to, to do that. That's Paul here to Timothy, that he's... Pay attention to this. Be urgent. This is important. Paul knows that. So with that, we're actually only covering just a couple of verses today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Let's stop right there. The first thing in this passage that I'd like you to see is that now in a great house, in a great house, what Paul is describing here is not an ordinary house, not a common house, but a great house. Some translations say a large or a big house. It is what he would say is an impressive house. It's one of these homes that you drive by and you go, wow, like look at that. Like that's, wow. Like, who lives there? What's up with that? Like, Paul's not pushing down anyone that doesn't live there. He's just saying, this house, it's impressive. It's worth something. That's the large house. It's, it's actually big. There are a lot of people that can come into this house. Now, of course, Paul, the way he writes and 
the way he uses imagery is he's actually not describing a house per se, like a building. He's actually describing the church. The church. And so he's trying to get the point across that this is the church. The church is large. It's big. It's impressive that the church is different. Look how Charles Spurgeon sums up this this saying about the house or the church. He says, the church is no narrow cottage, but a great house, worthy of the infinite heart of Jehovah, worthy of the blood of Jesus, the incarnated God, and worthy of the power of the blessed spirit. This great house has been erected at a great cost with great labor, right? That there are some words that we have changed colors because I want you to understand, like, this is a big deal. This is God's house. This isn't an ordinary house. This isn't just a gathering. Like, like the church is more than that. Too often we think of church as this. It's a place we go to on Sunday mornings that the church is a place that I got to go to church. Right? I've said that. I say that all the time, and I'm a pastor now. Like, I've got to go to church. Like, the church is not a place you go to. It's a place you belong to. We, you and me, are the church. City church existed before we had this building. We met somewhere else. And it would exist if we didn't have this building. There are churches all around the world right now where it is illegal to meet. They don't have a building. A church isn't a place you go to. It's a place you belong to. And the great thing about this house, this church, is there's no barrier to entry. That anyone is welcome. You don't have to hit a certain social economics status. You don't have to come from the right family. You don't have to be of the right nationality. Like, you can show up. You can, you can wear a suit and tie, and you can wear shorts and a tank top. Don't wear your bathing suit, though. <laughs> With that, anyone is welcome in this house. It's a large house. That it's a collection of people gathering. That when we say we're going to church, we're gathering, we're ga- the church is gathering to worship. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. Listen, too often, too often, at least in the West, we think of church like a, like a sports event. Like we're a bunch of sports fans that we come together and we wear our team colors and we cheer in unison when our team scores. And then when the game is over, we just all go our separate ways and live our separate lives. Paul is getting at his church is a little more than that. Ray Ortland says it this way, that the church is ground zero for this new kind of community that is Christ-centered, displayed for his glory. Now, here's the thing. Because Spurgeon said it was erected at a great cost with great labor. That's the church, you and I. And I know when I say that word church, automatically, for some people, a certain thought comes in your head. That we all look through lenses of past experiences. For some, you may not have any church experience. It's all brand new. You're just like, I don't really know what he's talking about. That's okay. For others, you may have grown up like me in church. For my experience, it was very religious, not very relational. Very check it off, legalism, that kind of stuff. Maybe that's you. For others... For others, when you think of church, you tense up a little bit because you've not had a good experience because the church, the people, 
that you were around burned you, hurt you, treated you poorly, didn't treat you as the Mago Dei, the, the, the image of God, that, that they didn't treat you like you should have been treated. Church, man, uh-uh, I don't want any part of that. We all have an experience, even if it's no experience. What I want to show you today is the church in its proper form, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy, can be good. can be good. And going back to originally talking about character, we too often think that there are problems or sin out in the world, and then there are like Christian problems and sin. There's just sin. Paul doesn't, he doesn't differentiate between the two. He's saying within the church there are issues. Timothy, be aware of this. Be aware of this for a church leadership. Be aware of this for people in the church that you need to be aware of this. And so Paul wants to remind Timothy of this because he's at the end. He even writes Timothy, um, he writes Timothy's church and Timothy was the leader of the church at Ephesus. And he says this in Ephesians 5.25, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, hey, the church is that important. I want you to know that, that this is a great house. But let's go back to our text. In this great house, there are two types of people. And here's what he says. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. When I look this up, what he's getting at is there are descriptions of there are gold and silver vessels. There are these vessels that look like this that are nice. They're really nice. They have value. This was my wife's grandmother, so if I drop it, um, you will never see me again. (laughs) But the point of it is they're really nice. They have a purpose. They're good. They're valuable. But there's one more. He, He only gives two. The other is just common. It looks like this. And what Paul is getting at is kind of like this. Imagine if I invited you over to my house and I cooked you your favorite meal. And I went and I got the best ingredients. I, I, I just did everything well. Everything was perfect. And you're going to sit down at my table and I go and I serve your meal in this. Right? You're going to be like, oh man, this is great. He's honoring me. He, this, this is good. But imagine then if I do the same thing and I go to serve that meal in this, which looks like a silver bowl, but it's actually, when I flip it over, it's my dog Franklin's food bowl. <laughs> it's kind of gross. <laughs> what would it do to the meal? It'd ruin it. It wouldn't be honorable. It'd be gross. I've taken a good vessel and I've served you in it, and that makes you feel one way. And I've taken the exact same thing and put it in a bad vessel, and it's changed everything. That's what Paul is getting at. That the vessel is useful. It's useful. It determines its usefulness. Whatever type of vessel it is makes it useful, makes it what it is. And what he's saying is in this house, in the house of God, the church, you and I, there are two vessels. There's the honorable vessel, 
and the dishonorable vessel. There's the gold and silver that's got good character and integrity and all the things that make it useful. And there's the everyday items that are like waste cans, garbage buckets, dog bowls that runs it off. Each has a purpose. Each is an instrument. But one leads to usefulness and honor and the other leads to garbage. That's the only two he gives. Which then begs the question that we got to wrestle with. If there are two types of people in this great house, in the church, which are you? I think naturally, we all want to be this. Like, who wants to be the dog bowl? We want to be this. Paul is telling Timothy, there are actually both. I don't want you to give the answer out loud, and I don't want you to automatically go here. I want you to sit in this for a second. Now, which one do you want to be? Which one are you? Which one are you? Because the thing is, I could take that same list of celebrities and politicians and athletes, and then I could pull up another list of church leaders or bad church cultures, and they may look good on the outside, but really they're inside of this, and they are destroying people. And so Paul's saying, listen, there are two choices. We better get it right, church. We better get it right. Now, here's the good news. Because if you're this, if this is you right now, I want to encourage you. There is hope. Paul could end it right there. He could say there are two types. Here's the information. Let's go on, Timothy. Let's talk about something else. But he doesn't. He doesn't stop in the letter. He keeps going that there is good news, that God doesn't leave us in that space. He doesn't say there is no more. He keeps going. So look at what he says in verse 21. Therefore, there are these two vessels in the great house. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone, there is no qualification, you've got anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. That there's an action that you and I can take when we're living like this to make us like this. And here's the beauty of that. I love that he put, and he will be, not he might be, he will be a vessel for honorable use. He will be. Paul knows this. Paul knows this himself. Flip over one book behind 2 Timothy, right behind it, to Titus. Because Paul, who's writing these letters, wrote another letter to Titus, who is another church leader. And here's what Paul tells him. And he uses the same type of language. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we, Paul included, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, which, by the way, he mentions again in Timothy, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one Another, that Paul said, listen, I know it. I've been there. I've been this. Go look at Acts when Paul is referred to as Saul. When Paul is referred to as Saul, when he is Saul, let me me clear this up. Paul 
who was Saul. Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He got the law. He was a Roman citizen. He was very intelligent. He got it. The best way I've heard Paul described when he was living as Saul was that he would be like a religious zealot, or in our times, he would be like a general or leader in Al-Qaeda or ISIS. That he knew the law, and he thought these Jesus followers were going with this Jesus way was blasphemy to God. There is no possible way. They're talking about this Jesus guy, and you can't go to God through him. I know the law. I'm Saul, and I'm going to go persecute them and kill them. That's Saul. And he gets his world flipped upside down on the Damascus Road and come to know Jesus, to experience Jesus. And Saul goes from that to, he goes from this to this to the point where God uses him as a good vessel where thousands of years later, there's a guy standing on stage in Alpharetta this morning telling you about his story. That's Saul to Paul. And Paul is writing Titus, look, for we ourselves, we were once foolish. We were all, all those things are dishonorable. That's Saul to Paul. Paul is, hey, I'm there. You ever been there? I've been there is what he's saying. I've been this. That's my story. Thank goodness. Thank goodness God didn't stop there. Because Paul then tells us how we cleanse ourselves, what action we have to take. Right after that, in verse 4 of the third chapter of Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, Right? He didn't leave us. He didn't forsake us. He appeared. He showed up. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What Paul is saying is, listen, how you clean yourself up is actually you can't do anything. What you do is you get your eyes up and look at Jesus. You can't clean yourself up. You can't do enough to make it right. That we have a sin condition. Saul, who was then Paul, had a condition. And he said, what changed me? Jesus. Jesus changed me. Listen, Jesus, Jesus makes Dishonorable people honorable. Or how I would say to my kids, Jesus makes bad people good. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. And it is through that action, trusting in Jesus, that we become this out of this. If that's where you're at, man, that's the best news ever. Listen, you can't mess up enough for God. He'll just keep coming. He'll just keep showing up. Right? Anyone going out and killing and murdering Christians? No. That was Saul. And God showed up. And you know what's, beauty, or what's beautiful? After that, he says in Titus that we become heirs. It is by the grace of who we are now in Jesus it is because of the grace God has given us because of Jesus that we become heirs. That we don't just get cleaned up. That's not where the story ends. That we actually become heirs in the great house. That we are now this. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. You cannot sin as much as God can forgive. 
If it comes to a battle between sin and grace, you shall not be as bad as God shall be good. Gosh, that's good news. That's the hope. So the action is, how do you cleanse yourself up? You turn to Jesus. And with that action, there is a result. Look back at our text. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. He becomes this. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That as a vessel for honorable use, we are set apart. We are made holy. That we're useful to the master. Who's the master? It's, it's Jesus. He has a purpose. And here's the beautiful thing. To be used by the master means the master knows you. He knows you. He's given you a purpose. You can be used. And you can be ready for whatever that use is going to become. That's you and I as vessels. See, here's the thing. Right now, we're living in a time where I think that's where a lot of people are struggling. There are a lot of people who are truly struggling with identity and purpose and value. In fact, I just read a study that was done by Harvard and Oxford together, and it was just done. It was very recent. And here's some stats. 36% of all Americans in this study reported being seriously lonely, which is feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time. That 36%, three, over 3 out of 10. That wasn't a lot, which it is. 51% of mothers with young children say they struggle with that. Listen, we got mothers with young children in this church. My wife's one of them. When I read that, I thought, ooh, that hits, I need to talk to her. Here's another one. 61%, 6 out of 10, of young adults in this study, 18 to 25 is the range, said that they have an increase in loneliness in the last year. That it's gotten worse. And here's what's crazy. I teach college students at Georgia State that fall into this bracket. And what is crazy to me is these kids, these young adults, have grown up in an era where they are the most connected people in the history of the world. Because they have grown up on social media. And yet, six out of ten of them are saying, man, I'm struggling with loneliness, even though I've got everything at the palm of my hand with a click of my thumb. I can connect with people, and yet I'm not connecting. I don't feel like my Facebook or Instagram or TikTok friends are enough for me to bury that loneliness feeling. When they asked these young adults this, here's what they said. That no one in the past few weeks, they felt like no one in the past few weeks have taken more than just a few minutes to ask them how they were doing. They felt like no one genuinely cared. And yet, people like that are walking through our doors every Sunday. 
there was a book written by the U.S. Surgeon General called The Epidemic of Loneliness, and, and here's what it said. It said that loneliness is the feeling that no place is home. In community after community, I met lonely people who have felt homeless even though they had a roof over their heads. Maybe what people experiencing loneliness and people experiencing homelessness both need are homes with other humans who love them and need them to know that they are needed by them in societies that care about them. That's not a policy agenda. That's an indictment of modern life. That what the U.S. Surgeon General said is, listen, hey, these people feeling lonely, it's basically just like homeless people. They may have a roof over their head, but here's what they're struggling with. It says this, that who love them and need them. Look, that's an indictment of modern life. That people are struggling. And yet we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be vessels of the gospel. That's why we got to get this right. That's why Jesus always gets it right. Because when people look at the church, I hope they look at the people of the church that make up the church, we're the church, and they see us being this, not this. And as I thought about this, I thought, man, those people are not numbers, they're people. And I remembered a story that hit home for me. I told you my dad passed away of cancer. My dad's profession was the director of parks and recreation in the town that he lived in. And he loved his job. Had a bigger than life personality, knew everyone in the town, was born there. I mean, you couldn't go to a restaurant without running into someone that he knew. Um, Absolutely loved it. And one Saturday, he got a phone call and He's, it was his secretary, he said, you've got to come to the Civic Center where their offices were, where the gym and people came to. And they said, you've got to come quick. There's been a leak in the lobby. So he gets there and there's water just shooting everywhere. It's going to ruin the tile. I mean, it's, it's awful. And my dad's like, are you kidding me? And like, I work for the government, so like, I don't know how easy it's going to be for someone to come on a Saturday from the city to fix this. So like, what am I going to do? And so he's trying to think and he's trying to think and he thinks, I'll call someone I know that's a plumber. He's like, I don't really know him, but like whoever can come, like Joe or whoever, I don't know the guy's name, but I'm going to call him. So he calls him, and the guy arrives, and he said, oh, I can fix it. Okay. My dad's like, yes. Basically, like, I will pay you whatever just to fix this problem. And the guy fixes, and everything is good. And my dad walks up to him, and, and he was telling me the story, and he says, I told the guy, hey, um, just invoice us. Like, we'll take care of this Monday. Thank you so much for doing this. And the guy said, I won't charge you if you'll come to church with me. And my dad, what? <laughs> and my dad had gone to church and stuff, but no relationship with the Lord. And he was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? He's like, dude, come to church with me and I won't charge you. My dad's like, it's better than paying, so I'll go to church. I'll check it off the box. I at least won't have to you know, pay this guy. So he goes. And then he goes again. And he goes again. And he's not coming consistently, but, but he's starting to go. And so he develops a relationship with the pastor. And he does what we do a lot of times on Sunday morning. Hey, how are you doing? And so he and the pastor are chatting. And the pastor asked my dad, he said, hey, how's work going? Good. We've got a baseball tournament we're hosting that's a state tournament. And we're coming up. And teams from all over the state are going to come to the city of Springfield. And, and we're going to host this. And it's going to be great. And that guy goes, well, how can we help? And my dad thought, 
huh, what are, you, what are you talking about? How can we help you? And he said, well, I guess you guys could do the hospitality tent. I mean, it's like 95 degrees in July in Tennessee. Like, nobody wants to do that. We'll give it to the church people. <laughs> and so they go, okay, and we'll do parking. And my dad was blown away. Wait, wait, you're going to go do something for nothing, and you're going to do more? He said, yeah. Why? Because we love this community. Because we live in this community. Because we want to serve this community. Because we want to be vessels that are honorable. Eventually, as my dad got to the end of his time with battling cancer, that pastor went over to my dad's house. They had developed this relationship because my dad then kept going to that church. And that pastor pointed him to Jesus, and my dad gave his life at the end to Christ. And a few months later, we're standing at the funeral home, and we're about to go do the service, and I'm going to speak, and then this pastor's going to go speak. And the pastor asked me, he said, hey, I've got a question for you. I just want to get your permission. He said, your dad was known in this community. He was a department head. There are 400 people plus around in this funeral home that's attending this service. And he said, I want to share the gospel. I said, absolutely. That'd be amazing. He said, all right, you go up there and you speak, and then I'll do it. I'll capture your dad too, and then I'll, I'll tie it into the gospel. And he did. And I don't know if anyone in that room left changed knowing Jesus at my dad's funeral. I have no idea. I hope to one day. But I know this. My dad knew of Jesus most of his life. He didn't know he was good until one man showed him. And I don't know who that man was. I've never met him. But because of his one act being a good vessel, an honorable vessel, my dad's life was changed. And I hope many others were. Church, that's what we get to do. That's why Paul is telling Timothy this. Because there are two vessels with us, the church. One leads to honorable use. One leads to dishonorable use. And even if you're this, you can become that. That's what we get to do. Listen, God is up to something. He's building his church all around the world. It's amazing he's building his church in nations that it is illegal to gather which proves the church is more than just a building. He's building this large house, and he's invited you and me to be a part of it. We get to be vessels of gold and silver in a world that's lonely, that's urgently hurting. So which vessel do you want to be? What impact would you like to have? That's the question I want you to wrestle with today. Listen, don't waste your life and settle for being a trash can or a dog bowl at the table of Jesus.